0: hello, and welcome to Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Gallup, and today we have finally arrived at the final episode on Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. So like last week, this is a true crime episode, so it will contain disturbing information about murder and stalking. If that's not for you, I totally understand. Come back next week, and we'll start the new hospital series. So for now... Come on in and get comfortable as we go behind the walls of Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. Today's episode focuses on the story of serial killer Nathan Trump. Although it's not essential to the story, later I'll give my rationale for why I don't actually think he is a serial killer, but rather a spree killer. Again, it's not super important to the story, but some people, like me, get really into the details, so stay tuned for that at the end. So here's the story. Nathan Trupp was born in 1947 in Baltimore, Maryland. He was the son of a newspaper reporter who later moved his family to Washington, D.C., so he could write for the Washington Times-Herald. Nathan Trupp was raised mostly in Silver Spring, Maryland, and had one older brother named Philip. I couldn't find a lot of information on their younger years, particularly Nathan's younger years. Uh, But his brother, Philip, who is eight years older than him, said that he had a traumatic childhood because he struggled at an early age with depression and withdrawal. So in this case, I assume withdrawal means isolation uh, because there wasn't any indication that he was abusing substances early in his life, although that's certainly possible. As a clinician, I'm curious to know more about What Nathan's brother called his traumatic childhood. Like I said, there isn't a lot of information about their childhood, and children generally don't develop severe mental illness early on without some sort of trauma. While it's certainly true that there are genetic components to disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, those symptoms generally don't develop until the late teens or early 20s, sometimes a little bit later. But if someone is exhibiting symptoms at a much younger age, like 10 or so, that's generally a red flag for something else. It doesn't necessarily signal abuse per se, but it could point to the need to survive at a young age. We sometimes uh, see severe mental illness begin early in folks whose family of origin experienced poverty and lots of significant change. So moving multiple times, loss of close friends or close family members, those sorts of things. Philip Trupp said that Nathan was artistically inclined from an early age. In the 1960s, Nathan attended the San Francisco School of Fine Arts. San Francisco School of Fine Arts. That's kind of hard to say. (laughs) This was during the free love era. And Philip believed that the wild nature of San Francisco during the 60s may have had a bad influence on Nathan. When his brother returned home, Philip said that Nathan came back with emotional disturbances. That said, it could also be because he was a young person arriving at the age when severe mental illness generally develops. Also during the 1960s, Nathan who who is Jewish, spent time on a kibbutz in Israel. If you're unfamiliar with kibbutzism, kibbutzim, and clearly I'm not an expert because I can't even say it correctly, they're, they're sort of communal living areas based upon utopian ideals of egalitarianism and self-sufficiency. They're similar to the communes that still exist in the U.S. There wasn't a lot of information about Nathan's time in Israel, but he did eventually return to the States and he continued to struggle with mental illness. His brother later said that Nathan was pretty good about voluntarily committing himself to an acute psychiatric hospital if he felt like he was losing touch with reality. However, on November 25th, 1987, Nathan was involuntarily committed to Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. It's unclear why he was committed, although it's likely that his symptoms increased and he may not have been able to seek help voluntarily. Often, people who experience delusions aren't able to recognize when they're having delusions, so they may get involuntarily committed. In this case, it doesn't sound like Nathan committed any crimes. In fact, his brother Philip later, later said that Nathan never got in trouble with the law, never even got a speeding ticket before his offense. Nathan only stayed at Trenton a couple of months this time. He was deemed not to be a threat, and he was discharged to a local board and care facility in February 1988. On April 5th, 1988, though, Nathan eloped from the board and care home and left for Albuquerque, New Mexico. He wasn't taking his medications at the time. And this really is one of the biggest issues for many patients leaving any type of care facility. Psych meds, but particularly antipsychotics, have pretty unpleasant side effects. Some of the older generation antipsychotic medications can can be overly sedating or cause unusual face movements like tics. Some of the newer medications can cause extreme weight gain. I've seen More than a few patients gain almost 100 pounds in less than a year, and almost all antidepressants and antipsychotic medications have some sort of negative effect on libido or sexual function. There are ways to manage these side effects, but many patients just prefer to go off the meds entirely. I've heard many of my own patients say, I'm better now. I don't need any meds. And I say, that's because you're taking your medications. (laughs) Stay on them. And sometimes they just don't get it anyway. So Nathan left for New Mexico and seemed to like it. He even called his brother Philip to talk about how beautiful he thought Albuquerque was. He picked up odd jobs here and there to make ends meet, but he didn't really need it. He was still living off of a $100,000 inheritance from his father's death back in 1980. Somehow, even though he was technically an escaped psychiatric patient He was able to get a New Mexico ID and an apartment. Nathan's symptoms increased over the following months, probably because of a lack of medication. He became paranoid and fixated on Nazis. And remember that Nathan is Jewish. He frequented the the bagel lover's shop co-owned by Joseph Familietta Sr. and Richard Wilt, but apparently he didn't care for it too much. For months, he told neighbors about their terrible food and how he believed that the owners were poisoning people. By November 1988, Nathan had warned several people about the poisoned food at Bagel Lovers and urged them not to eat there. The Familietas even received a frightening phone call on Sunday, November 27, 1988. The caller said he was short a bagel and I'll get you for this before hanging up. On Monday, November 28th, the next day, Nathan hailed a cab. He complained of the lousy food served at the bagel lover's shop and then told the cab driver he was in search of a gun because God had instructed him to kill a Nazi SS officer. The cab driver obliged and drove him to several gun shops in town before he purchased a 38 caliber handgun. Of course, we don't really know what we would do in any situation unless we're in it, but I would hope that I wouldn't drive someone to multiple gun shops when that person is explicitly stating he wants to kill someone, even if it's delusional in nature. Who's to say he wouldn't have delusional ideas about me and think that I was the SS officer? And the next morning on Tuesday, November 29th, 1988, Nathan Trapp went to Bagel Lovers to exact his revenge. He passed a woman as he reached the door and warned her not to go in. Why, she asked. A sin is going to be committed, he responded. Now, if someone told me this today, I'd probably turn right around and hightail it out of there while dialing 911. At least that's what I assume I would do. But this woman didn't believe Trump and went inside with him right behind her. And that's when he started shooting. Fortunately, the woman was unhurt, but by the end of the shooting, the owners of the bagel shop, Joseph Emilietta Sr., aged 63, Richard Wilt, age 39, and his wife, Jean Wilt, age 37, were all dead. Trapp took his gun and walked across the street to the Circle K, where he bought himself a Coke, drank half of it, and left the cup of the rest of it at the store. He then seemed to simply disappear While a manhunt ensued. Two days later, on December 1st, 1988, Nathan Trupp showed up in Hollywood, California at Universal Studios. He purchased a general admission ticket for a tour of the studio. The film Highway to Heaven, starring Michael Landon and Victor French, was in its final production. While on the tour, Trupp asked several employees where he could find Michael Landon. I'm sure they placated him with a response like, oh, he's filming right now or he's unavailable or something like that. But that didn't satisfy Trump. He walked away from the tour and toward the guardhouse where the security officers were located. He approached the guardhouse and began demanding to use the phone, saying that he needed to get a hold of Michael Landon. The officers, 18-year-old Armando Torres and 27-year-old Jared Beeks, told him that he could not use the the studio phone and that he would have to use the payphone outside. Trapp took a few steps out of the guardhouse, took out his gun, and stepped back in. He raised his gun and shot Jared Beeks three times in the head. Beeks died instantly of his injuries. He then turned and shot Armando Torres once in the head and twice in his body. Torres was later taken to the hospital. Trump began to flee the scene and was spotted by a third guard. The guard followed Trupp in his truck to a parking lot until he spotted a deputy who was responding to a call for shots fired. Trupp shot at the deputy but missed, his shot hitting the roof of an unoccupied car. The deputy fired back several times, hitting Trupp in his chest and right arm. The deputy was, un- was uninjured in the shootout. When paramedics arrived, Trepp told them that God had ordered him to kill someone. Trepp then shouted out, help me, kill me, as he was strapped to the gurney. He was then taken to the same hospital, ironically on the same floor, as his victim Armando Torres, who died of his injuries the next day. Trepp survived his injuries and later told police that he believed the bagel lover owners and actor Michael Landon were all Nazis, and that it was his job to kill them. He was evaluated by three psychiatrists who deemed him incompetent to stand trial, and he was sent to Patton State Hospital in San Bernardino. A quick note on competency, since I realize that some listeners may not be familiar with this process. Every state in the US has competency laws because under the Sixth Amendment of the US Constitution, we are guaranteed a fair and speedy trial. So what do you do when you have someone who's been charged with crimes saying that he committed them because he was on a mission from God to kill Nazis? He's clearly not in his right state of mind. So putting him on the stand, for instance, would essentially deny him his constitutional right to a fair trial. So what happens is the public defender raises the question of competency. and The client is given a psychiatric evaluation. If that evaluation or evaluations determines that he's not able to aid and assist in his defense, then he's deemed incompetent to stand trial and committed to a state hospital for restoration of competency. There's no set period of time for restoration to occur. Some people get restored quickly and are sent back to jail in a couple of months, but others may take up to two years. And I, I think most states allow up to two years of competency treatment. So once someone has been sent to a state hospital for competency, they attend fairly rigorous treatment where they learn about the court system in general. Some questions, for instance, are easy. What's the role of a judge? What's the role of a jury? While other questions are a little more difficult. You know, How many plea options are there? What does it mean to plead no contest? Patients also have to know the ins and outs of their own case, even if the police reports differ from their memory of the event, and sometimes if the police reports are just wrong, which unfortunately happens. They need to know the names of their charges, possible sentencing outcomes for each charge, and where they would serve their sentence depending on how they plead. I don't work with competency cases much anymore, but when I did, I was always surprised at how much information my patients needed to know. I sometimes wish that I could take a poll of random people on the street and ask them the same questions my patients were expected to know. And I bet most people wouldn't do as well as they think they would, even if they do watch Law & Order. So once a person is deemed competent to stand trial, they return to jail for sentencing. Depending on the plea they take... They might stay in jail if they had a misdemeanor or a short sentence. Uh, They might go to prison for felonies or for longer sentences, or they might go back to a state hospital if they were adjudicated not guilty by reason of insanity. In the case of Nathan Trump, he was evaluated at Patton State Hospital, where he was described as distraught at the mere mention of his alleged crimes. And I say alleged here because he hadn't been convicted yet. He presented with hallucinations, emotional outbursts, and appeared suspicious and distrustful. I didn't see mention of a diagnosis, but it, it sounds consistent with a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. Now, generally, when someone commits a crime in California, they serve their time in California. And I'm not sure why, but Trump was sent to Trenton Psychiatric Hospital in New Jersey following his sentencing. I'm not sure if this is because his crimes occurred in two states or if his family was, was able to petition for him to be closer to them or what. But he wasn't required, I, I guess, to stay in California. It seems a little odd to me, but I'm sure there was a good reason. Now, as of the time of this recording in April 2023, Nathan Trupp is still alive and still serving his sentence at Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. He's 76 years old. At the time of his crimes, he was 42. Now, at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that Trump is considered a serial killer, but I disagree. I think he's a spree killer. And here's my rationale, and I'll let you decide for yourself what you think. A spree killer is someone who kills three or more people in separate incidents without a cooling off period. For instance, if someone shoots two people in the morning, Shoots one person later that evening and then shoots two more people the next day. Those are multiple deaths in separate incidents, maybe even separate locations uh, without a cooling off period. The killer is still going to be pretty high on adrenaline after each incident. A serial killer is someone who kills three or more people in separate incidents with a cooling-off period. And there are so many examples of this. Um, One of the most notorious, obviously, is is Ted Bundy, who murdered at least 36 people, at least 36 people, over a several-year period. Dennis Rader, known as BTK, killed 10 people between 1974 and 1991. These killers had sometimes significant cooling-off periods when they were able to have a family, hold jobs and otherwise function normally. So that's why I don't think Nathan Trump fits the profile of a serial killer. He killed three people in New Mexico on November 29th and then two people in California two days later on, on December 1st. That feels more like a spree killing to me. Two days isn't a significant cooling off period. Now, all that said, this is just semantics. So I'll let you decide what you think. And, Just for reference, a mass murderer is someone who kills three or more people in the same incident. So Howard Unruh, whom we discussed last week, is an example of a mass murderer because he killed 13 people in the span of about 20 minutes. So it's a short episode, but that's where I'm going to end the story of Nathan Trump and the story of Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. For our next hospital series, we're going to go back in time to the turn of the 20th century in Michigan. I'm excited to begin telling you about a new hospital, even though I know some of the information is going to be difficult to hear, difficult to tell you about. We've come a long way in the field of psychiatry and the treatment of severe and persistent mental illness, but we still have so far left to go. And this next hospital is truly the embodiment of Maya Angelou's quote that I end every episode with. Do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening to Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Once again, I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Gallup. Cover image is by Christopher Payne. Check out my website at behindthewallspodcast.buzzbrout.com. Follow the podcast and learn more on Facebook at Behind the Walls Podcast and Instagram at Behind the Walls Pod. For questions or recommendations, email me at behindthewallspodcast at gmail.com. You can find new episodes every Monday on Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find and listen to the show, and I would be so grateful. Please stay tuned for more episodes of Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Until next time.